0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. It's pretty much like what I would call hurricane track modeling. We have a number of pre-existing models that can predict the path that a hurricane can take.
1: Today's episode explores the modeling of the COVID-19 epidemic and the impact this epidemic has on hospitals, ICUs, and ventilator usage. Joining us on the podcast is Dr. John Wong, who's a general internist and the chief of clinical decision-making in the Department of Medicine at Tufts Medical Center. He's professor of medicine at the School of Medicine. He's an associate statistical editor at the Annals of Internal Medicine and a member of the USPSTF. The articles that we're going to discuss are an editorial that he wrote titled Pandemic Surge Models in the Time of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, Coronavirus 2, Wrong or Useful. This refers to two other articles estimating the maximum capacity of COVID-19 cases manageable per day, Given a healthcare system's constrained resources, and Caution Warranted, using the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation Model for predicting the course of COVID 19 pandemic. These articles appeared respectively on April 18th, April 15th, and April 14th in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Thank you for listening to our podcast. So, John, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, your editorial was uh, most illuminating about uh, the concept of modeling and what these models are trying to do. But I think it'd be really nice if you could describe what they're trying to model uh, and what they're predicting and why, what are the importance of the, these kinds of models.
0: Thanks so much for asking me to speak about the editorial, Bob. This was an attempt to describe what the current world is facing in terms of the pandemic. As you know, we have over 2 million confirmed cases and more than 100,000 deaths worldwide from the severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 pandemic. And that's generated a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt as the world has witnessed what uh, that virus has done to hospitals in Wuhan, Italy, and most recently, New York City. So, these models attempt to help decision makers prepare for when the epidemic reaches their local area, to help them make plans um, so that they are not overwhelmed, and to make estimates for resource demands such as uh, acute care beds, critical care beds, and uh, in particular ventilators. In the face of this uncertainty that these models uh, were generated to try to help those individuals prepare their hospital capacities and to determine when peak demand will occur, these models were rapidly developed. I'll just say a word about models. Um, They are representations typically on a much simplified smaller scale, and in particular, because the pandemic spread across the world very rapidly, these models are simplified representations to try to use
1: different approaches to making estimates of resource needs. So resource needs, let me see if I I understand this. This is how many ICU beds you need, how many ventilators you need, how many hospital beds you need. Is, Is it that or is there more to it? That is precisely um, the outcomes that uh, these
0: models predict. It's really directed towards uh, hospital administrators or hospital system administrators or people um, responsible from a public health standpoint for organizing the healthcare system within uh, a county, a state, or even nationally to think about what kinds of resources will be needed locally.
1: You and I both have done modeling in the past uh, and have read a lot of models and seen a lot of models that didn't work. Why don't we go through, I believe you uh, talked about three different models, and they have strengths and they have weaknesses, and I think it's really worthwhile for us to understand what the strengths are, what the assumptions are, and what the unintended consequences of those models could be if they're not accurate. So, the most famous one, I guess, is IHME. Uh, Thanks again
0: for asking. You know, one of my favorite quotes is, medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. And all of these models attempt to address the uncertainty associated with planning. The IHME one has garnered a great deal of press in the media. It is a model that focuses on observed mortality in cities in which the epidemic has occurred and where the number of deaths have actually risen and started to fall. So it's really based on what I call curve fitting to observed mortality approaches. It echoes an approach from a British statistician and epidemiologist from the 1840s who modeled epidemics using mortality curves because at that time they really did not have a scientific understanding of the way in which epidemics grew and the way in which epidemics fall. Uh, One could say that it's a very hard outcome, meaning that it's uh, what is observed in terms of the behavior. And what they actually found, or he actually found, was it looks uh, basically like a curve that goes up and goes down. And what the IHME approach does is it looks in cities that have already reached their peak during the pandemic to try to predict based on those curves what will happen locally. So it's garnered a great deal of press because it has been making um, estimates for states and for countries. And they've broadened their estimates from not just the United States, but to other countries as well as other cities within those countries. And it uh, does so basically by looking at the shape of those mortality curves that have been observed in China, in Italy, in Spain, and in Germany most recently. And it supplements that with other mortality data in uh, older populations. Now, It has no relationship to what we understand as, uh, based on more modern approaches, the mechanistic or dynamic transmission of infections within a population, which we'll get to when we talk about the next model. So, some of the concerns uh, about these mortality models is that they assume... The behavior of the population is similar. The shape of the curve is similar. And uh, as I mentioned, does not make any assumption about um, any of the actual transmission and then attempts to back calculate from that. So, out of the number of people who die, how many of them uh, were on mechanical ventilators or in critical care beds or in acute care beds? And so it's uh, fitting a curve for observed mortality, and then based on that curve, back-calculating or making an estimate of the resource needs based on that curve.
1: Okay, okay. and that, there's a, a very interesting article in uh, the Annals about a week ago that uh, talks about some of the problems with that kind of modeling that, are, that is also worth reading. The second model is uh, CHIME, or C-H-I-M-E. Maybe you could talk about that one.
0: Yes. um, This is a very different kind of model. It is, as I mentioned, what we call a dynamic transmission or a mechanistic model. Another uh, statistician in the early 1900s recognized that germ theory of infection transmission had been well accepted by that time. And... He recognized the need to incorporate the host population when modeling an epidemic uh, and to incorporate this notion of infectiousness. So let me try to give you an idea of that. Uh, He thinks about a population that may be susceptible to some infection. And in the case of this particular pandemic virus, it's never before uh, been seen in the world. There have been other coronaviruses, obviously, but not this particular strain. So when you think about susceptibility worldwide, there is no existing, pre-existing immunity to this infection. So you've got a world of individuals that are susceptible to infection. Some of those individuals may get exposed to the infection, this particular virus. In these kinds of models, this susceptible population some members of the population get exposed, get infected from that exposure, and then they can recover or not recover from them. So we call these susceptible, exposed, infected, or recovered infectious disease models uh, using an acronym SEIR or simply SINR when we exclude exposures. And When you think about these kinds of models, you think mechanistically. So you have this susceptible uh, population, they get exposed to the virus, and uh, while they're infected, they uh, potentially can transmit that infection to others. And we describe mechanistically the risk of infecting others by a concept called the basic reproductive number, or R-naught, and it's the number of additional cases of infections in other people that that one infected person will generate. And what we observed in Wuhan, uh, based on the initial analyses, were that roughly about two people get infected for every one who uh, is initially infected. And you can imagine that that uh, group of infected individuals then can grow exponentially from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 to 64 to 128 to 256, uh, so on and so forth. And you can see how this virus has spread from China to around the world. You also think about other components, that is, well, how many days that it, take for the epidemic to double in cases. And in Wuhan, it took about seven days. We also think then about, well, how long does it take from infection to the development of symptoms? That's about five days. And then the serial interval, which is the number of days between illness onset from the initial infection to when it actually infects these secondary individuals. And that was about seven or eight days. And you can get much more detailed in these models, including things like uh, the duration, degree of infection is before and during symptom onset. How dense are the different populations? Do you think about contacts at school, at work, or randomly in the community, or through public transportation? And what about heterogeneity or differences in the ability to transmit infection, such as these so-called super-spreaders? Is there a risk for asymptomatic spread of infections um, that do not lead to hospital uh, evaluation but might be in individuals who are transmissible to other community members? These are very complex and potentially quite detailed models, but Chime wanted to make their tool uh, able to be used by administrators and policymakers, so they greatly simplified the number of elements that those individuals would need to enter into the model so that these administrators can adapt that model to the local context.
1: Okay, so we have those two models, and then the model in the issue that you wrote the editorial is uh, called CAIC-RT. What does that stand for? Thanks for asking,
0: Bob. It stands for COVID-19, acute, an intensive care resource tool, and it actually takes a third different approach to making estimates. It uses uh, a branch of engineering called operations research, which seeks to maximize outputs given constraints to identify cues and bottlenecks that may benefit from additional resource You can think about this in terms of a factory where um, you have inputs and outputs and you're trying to maximize the factory output. So this model, to some extent, ignores the epidemic and says, you know, you have so many hospital beds, both acute care uh, as well as uh, critical care, as well as ventilators, And you've got to allocate some of those beds to COVID-19 patients, and you've got to allocate some of those beds to non-COVID-like patients. And you can think about this, again, from a hospital's perspective or a healthcare system's perspective, or as a provincial perspective, since these are coming from Canadian researchers. And they were asked to say, well, you know, if you've got this many beds available for acute care, you've got this many beds available for critical care, and you've got this many mechanical ventilators. What happens when you reach maximum capacity? Because obviously when an infection first occurs within a hospital or hospital system, you have plenty of resources. But at some point, as cases keep coming in, you reach capacity. And This particular tool says, well, when you reach capacity, what's the maximum number of patients you can take care of given those limitations in the actual number of beds, the actual number of critical care beds, and actual number of ventilators that you can either add on or expand with surge capacity or shift from non-COVID use to COVID use? What's the maximum number of inputs and outputs? And what they capture is not only the bed use, but also the length of stay for each of those things. And they allow users to adjust their inputs to the local patient population. For example, in Italy, patients were much older, uh, and consequently, they experienced a, a higher mortality rate than, say, the individuals within China. Well, this tool allows you to adjust for that and uh, basically says, well, making assumptions that you could have all patients with a set mean length of stay for each resource use, what's the maximum throughput that you could estimate? The problem with one of these types of models is it really is like a factory where the uh, People coming in and the people going out come at uh, set intervals. So that basically as soon as a person leaves or a patient leaves a particular resource, another person comes in to use that resource. And as you and I both know, that doesn't happen very often uh, on a regular basis in the midst of a pandemic.
1: The uh, model that I was most familiar with was IHME. And uh, I live in Alabama, as you know. The very first prediction they made was that Alabama was going to have the worst outcomes in the country. Turns out that every time they redo the model, our numbers look better and better and better. There's obviously a flaw in the predictions, and one of the things that I learned 40 years ago is that it's great to make a model based upon the data you have, but predicting what's going to happen elsewhere requires some kind of validation. Are, are these models undergoing validation? And what do I mean by validation?
0: Oh, that's a great question, Bob. You know, it reminds me of that aphorism, um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And uh, I think the analogy to some of the prior modeling work that you've done, looking at streptococcal pharyngitis and transporting models from lo- one location to another is uh, an apropos analogy to these models because, as you know, when you transfer uh, a model, the, for example, the likelihood of a strep throat may be very different in different populations. And that's exactly the case uh, when we're trying to uh, look at all three of these
1: different models.
0: One of the key concepts to Uh, thinking about models is that we would love to have predictive validity. That is, we would love to be able to transport a model from one place to another and say that it can, uh, with accuracy, predict the exact um, need for resources when you transport um, that model. It's pretty much like what I would call hurricane track modeling, We have a number of pre-existing models that can predict the path that a hurricane can take. Uh, In the near term, those models can make better predictions. But as you extrapolate the model, the paths for those different predictions diverge. And I would say that's the same for all three of these models. But to turn to the question of, well, how do we think about what characteristics constitute an accurate or a a valid model. There are some specific steps that I like to think about. Do we know whether or not there has been um, verification in the model development um, to make sure that the outputs uh, match what the modelers intended to have uh, happen? We call that verification. That's just to, to make sure that the mathematical operators are exactly the way that you implied them or wanted them to be. Um, there's also internal validation. If you, say, for example, took the IHME model and went back to Wuhan, did it reproduce the curve that they um, projected and then um, there's external validation, where you take your predictions and you see in an external place whether or not your model validated. Meaning that uh, if you developed a model, say from Wuhan, did it uh, predict the epidemic uh, results that you observed within Bergamo, Italy? And then lastly, there's cro- cross model validation, which is well, you're predicting this. Other people have tried to predict with the model that. And uh, do you come up with similar results? And if not, why not? And I'll just mention that I think what's really important is that modeling is a form of science. And when we think about science, we'd like to think about credibility and reproducibility as um, scientific standards. And so when we're describing these models, we really ought to be clear about their data sources, the methods by which they integrate those data sources. Uh, A couple of these models have open source code that's available for individuals to look at and for those with the methodologic expertise to pour over to understand the assumptions that they're making. And lastly, it would be uh, important to incorporate elements of uncertainty and sensitivity analysis where we vary parameters over a broad range, again, to understand better the range of outcomes and what are the important factors that need to be considered. And I'll just reemphasize emphasize I think these are just tools to help administrators. Uh, I would probably encourage the use of multiple models. I would encourage the use uh, of updating these models. And even as we speak, the models for IHME, as one example, have been continuously updated. For example, they've looked at four interventions initially. They uh, winnowed that list down to three interventions. And right now, um, they've expanded the number of interventions they're looking at uh, up to six. So, updating models is a component of... Uh, clearly for both uh, IHME and for CHIME, and uh, I would uh, endorse that. I would also endorse that the uh, short-term predictions are probably a little more certain than the long-term ones, especially as you observed with the refinement of the IHME model as applied to Alabama. And uh, I'll say I noticed the same uh, applied to Massachusetts.
1: I guess uh, uh, the final thing that uh, always concerns me about modeling is something that you mentioned just in the last minute or two, and that's the assumptions. And I think it's always important to look at what are the assumptions and are those assumptions legitimate. Uh, so for example, how many of these models take into consideration demographics? Uh, because we know that different age groups, uh, different uh, ethnicities have uh, are more likely to end up Uh, needing intensive care and ventilators, and is that part of any of their models, and should it be?
0: That's a really important question in terms of this tailoring of tools to your specific population. Uh, I'll say that the uh, Canadian CAIC-RT model has a specific place where you can input the age distribution of your local patient population as well as their likelihood of requiring hospitalization, critical care, and uh, mechanical ventilation needs. The CHIME approach doesn't allow you to do that at the granular level of age-stratified analyses, but you are able to enter in the proportion of patients requiring acute care beds or hospitalizations requiring Critical care use and requiring mechanical ventilators, as well as your local lengths of stay for those items. The IHME um, does not uh, allow you to modify any of those characteristics. They've sort of done it for you for your local state, and then how you account for your local state data to your local institution is uh, a matter that you can try to simulate by doing adjustments
1: for your market share. Uh, of those needs within your state. Well, John, thank you so much for helping uh, me and I believe the listeners understand what all this modeling stuff is about, why it is important, uh, and why we uh, should remain a little bit skeptical about what any one model says, but maybe. Uh, understand that uh, putting a group of models together, we might get uh, better reflection. And I love the point that you make that they're really good at short-term predictions and not as good as long-term predictions. And I loved the hurricane analogy. So thanks a lot. Thank
0: you, Bob. And thank you for your interest. And I guess I would leave with uh, one other thought, which is a a quote from an editorial in the New England Journal by uh, Dr. Rosenbaum the best outcome of this pandemic would be accused of being overprepared. And I think these models help planners prepare for this, in particular, as we try to thread that needle between when do we uh, relax some of the physical distancing measures and how can uh, planners both at the uh, public health level as well as the administrative level take advantage of these models to do that in a safe and effective way. And again, thanks very much for your interest, Bob.
1: Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. Dr. Wong did a wonderful job of explaining the purpose and concerns about the use of these models. The purpose of the models is to help hospital administrators and healthcare systems check to see if they have capacity for the likely number of patients that they will see and need to care of, especially in intensive care and especially with ventilators. As he very nicely explains, these models will work quite well in the very short run, but probably have more problems trying to predict what's going to happen as much as a week or two weeks in advance. He's given us a much better understanding of why these models exist how they can be misused and misinterpreted, and how they can be used in a healthy way. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast.
0: For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.